God is good. Today is a day about Thanksgiving, and I'd like us to turn to Psalm 107. Oh, and another thing. Uh, I decided, I had decided to uh, give a break from all that uh, church history stuff. And so today, it's going to be a little bit easier. It's going to be called uh, Love and Thanksgiving. That's the sermon. Love and Thanksgiving. should be lighter, I hope. Um, Psalm 107 is a psalm story about life and various generic life experiences. If you look at Psalm 105 and 106, if you have time to read through those, it's all about Israel's history, specifically them in the desert and who they fought and the starvation and the deliverance. But not Psalm 107, it's generic. It talks about people who are redeemed from everywhere. Uh, let's pray before I move on. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time that we have to spend together on your holy day. We ask that you would help me to communicate what you would like me to say. And uh, let us all be receptive to the Spirit of God moving upon our hearts. And in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, verse 1, for he is good. For his mercy endures forever. There's another passage that says his anger endures but a night or a season. But his mercy is eternal. So let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Whom he has redeemed. What does redeemed mean? Saved, but there's, there's, there's a really picture of money there. Yeah, bought back. There, there's a price to be paid with redeemed, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the enemy and gathered out of the lands from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Now notice verse 4. There are four categories of people in this psalm, and we're just going to cruise through it uh, during the course of this sermon. Verse 4, it says, They wandered in the wilderness. In a desolate way, they found no city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted in them. Then they cried out to who? The Lord in their trouble. And he delivered them out of their distresses. Most of us will probably not find ourselves wandering alone in a wilderness somewhere. Though some might. For most of us, it's metaphorical. What do I do? What do I do with this life decision? What am I doing here? I've never asked that. The first semester I came here in 09, winter, I thought I was, again, to quote David, there's, as your soul lives, he told Jonathan, there's but what's, there's but one step between me and death. And that's how I felt, academically speaking. Until the midterms came and turns out I'm a wonderful test, test taker. <laughs> I forgot that, but, but, but God really showed up. I really wasn't treading the water so well. I'd like to tell you another story about a gentleman. His name is Michael Hazel. 
He is the director of the archaeology department at Southern Adventist University. Now, this is his story. When he was a second-year theology student, he got to take a year off and study abroad in Austria, where he had cousins. His uncle was a pastor there. And he studied at this small school called uh, Hogenhofen, something like that. And he says that he didn't like the cold weather. And one winter, or November, as winter was approaching, his father called from the States saying, Son, we have a family get-together planned for Christmas, Florida, Key Largo. Get to come enjoy the warm weather. What do you say? You're going to have about 40 of your relatives show up. Uh, we're going to have a blast. But you're an adult. He was 20 years old. Uh, you get to choose for yourself if you're going to do this. But it's kind of late in the season, so I'm going to go reserve the tickets now. And you have three hours to decide if you're going to do this. You know, no pressure. No pressure. So Michael was in Austria. He got this phone call. and said, okay. But he didn't know what to do because he had plans that he was going to spend with his family there, Christmas, his uncle and cousins. And he didn't know what to do and he was troubled by it. And he went to his cousin and, he, and she said, oh, well, have you prayed about it, Michael? And he hadn't thought about it yet. And he was a second year theology student. And she was a high school student. So he said, no, I, I haven't done that yet. And so they knelt down and they prayed together in her dorm room, them and their cousin, for guidance on this simple, mundane decision. Do I go or do I stay here? And as the day wore on, those few hours, uh, they went off into town. And he kept thinking and praying to himself, "What, what do I do about this decision? Do I go or do I stay? And nothing really dramatic happened. But as the time went on, as, and as he contemplated this decision, you know, God didn't reveal his will in some authoritative, spectacular manner. But as he thought about going, he began to feel uneasy. And as he thought about staying, he began to feel peace, like this was the thing he was supposed to do. Even though it's not the thing his kind of heart wanted to do because he wanted to be with his family in the warm weather. Uh, and so when his father called back, he said, Son, oh, awesome, good news. I have reserved a flight for you. It's going to go from Frankfurt to London to New York to Miami. We're going to pick you up. It's two hours away. Oh, and your grandmother is going to come. It's her first time going to be with us there in Florida. She's never been to Florida before. And, oh, and your mother and I have decided to buy you the ticket. Oh, by the way, what did you decide? Uh, and he looks out the window and he sees the, the rain that he didn't like. But he said, Dad, I've decided that it's best that I stay here. I've prayed about it. I've decided to stay here with my extended family here. Your mother will be very disappointed. And as the weeks went on, the snow came and the whole place 
appeared beautiful to him. He went and hung out with his family up in Germany. Christmas Eve, the tree goes up, real candles on the tree, real fire. And he gets a phone call from the States. It's his father. Hey, Michael, talk to so-and-so. Hey, how's it going? Now talk to so-and-so. He talked for about an hour overseas, long distance, with probably everybody. And his father went back on the phone and said, Michael, I'm so glad you didn't come this year. Well, why not? You don't miss me. No, that's not it. I had you booked on Pan Am Flight 103, which crashed in Lockerbie, Scotland. And his mind went back to the journey he made driving up to Germany and the newscast. It talked about this plane that went up from London. Something happened as, as it was approaching the cruising altitude. Some explosion took place. Everybody on board died. The plane crashed into a town, Lockerbie, Scotland. A few people on the ground died. His immediate reaction wasn't, oh, thank God I'm alive. It was kind of a, I don't know. He kind of reacted the way you probably are. Like, uh, I was that close to death. And that single prayer I had with my cousin and her roommate may have been the dividing line for me between life and death. And he says he had to wrestle with all these huge, huge questions. He doesn't say what they were, but you can imagine. You know, thoughtful people out there will ask, and it is a good question. What about the 189 who died? That's a good question. I don't have the answer to that question. I don't need to now. I don't know. We have to leave that stuff in the Lord's hands. But what are you grateful for this Thanksgiving season? Their soul fainted within them, verse 5. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them out of their distresses. He led them forth by the right way, that they might go to a city for a dwelling place. Oh, that men would give what? Verse 8. Thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. For he satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness. Those who sat in darkness and in the shadow of death. Here's a second group of people. And I am looking at the clock. Bound in affliction and irons because they, what? They rebelled against the words of God. Oh, so it's their own fault. And despised the counsel of the Most High. Therefore he brought down their heart with labor. They fell down and there was none to help. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble and he saved them out of their distresses. 2013 in the May, Harrison Okin was a Nigerian cook on a tugboat sailing in the Atlantic Ocean. They were towing an uh, oil rig, uh, an oil ship. Something happened. The boat went over and sank. It was 4.30 on the 26th of May. 
when this tugboat gave a sudden lurch and then kneeled, keeled over, Harrison O'Keen was in the bathroom. And he was thrown about and he found a room where he thought was secure in the dark, wherever, shut the, shut the doors as he was taught and waited as the waters rose. The boat sunk, sunk to a depth of about 100 feet. And the water slowly rose and he piled mattresses on top of each other. And he was wondering and worried about the other 11 crewmen and the Ukrainian captain on board. The waters rose, and he stood there in his shorts for 72 hours as the temperatures dipped to near freezing. 72 hours surviving on a bottle of Coke. And the few Bible verses his wife had texted him just before he sunk. He had just read Psalms 54 through 92. And he had, his wife had sent him the verses to read that night when, he, when she called him before he went to bed. And he kept reciting the prayer for deliverance of David. Oh God, by your name save me. The Lord sustains my life. But he thought he was going to die. At one point he heard a boat uh, nearby. He took a hammer stripped the material off the off the wall on the inside and banged the hammer on the hull to make to make noise but the boat didn't hear him and they went off shortly thereafter divers from uh, a salvage uh, company showed up to pick up the corpses expecting to find nothing but the dead and there is a video online I didn't bring this up because it was dark and it'd be hard to see, but you can you can look this up. Just Google Nigerian tugboat crewman saved or something like that or Okeen, that was his name, O-K-E-N-E. And you see in the camera of this diver's um, on his helmet, you see his hand there. And the first reaction from the man on board, the leader, is that, oh, we found one meaning a body, and you see the two hands grasp, and you see the shock, and you hear the shock of them realizing, oh, we've got a live one. Oh, great, what do we do? <laughs> and they're surprised, and you see the, the diver come up into this air pocket, and there's Harrison O'Keen right there, this real-life Jonah, looking at this belief at this light that's shining in his face. And the guy on the other end saying, oh, comfort him, comfort him, uh, <laughs> calm him down. Uh, they eventually put a, a scuba rig on him and talked him out of how to get out there with the diver, get out there safely. Relax, we got you. We're going to take you home. This man was saved from the depths. Verse 16. For he has broken the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron into. Verse 15. Oh, that men would give what? Thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Verse 17. Fools 
because of their transgression and because their iniquities were afflicted. This is the third group. The sick. Now, not everybody who is sick is a fool and suffering because of their own sin. But there are fools who do suffer for their own sin and bring illness upon themselves. But God doesn't look at people the way we do, you know, in the prison and when they're sick. And we have a tendency, I'm not sure how to put it, uh, we like to avoid hard questions. You know, and it's harder for us in our heads to cope with the idea of someone being a good, righteous, caring person and they're suffering extreme hardship. And there's a temptation for us to, you know, hear about some sin in their life and say, oh, that's why, you know, rationalize it. But there are cases when people really do bring themselves into trouble. Verse 18, their soul abhorred all manner of food and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them out of their distresses. He sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destructions. Another professor at Southern, Steve Bauer, he's a professor of religion. He was pastor at a church and he was preaching on righteousness by faith, something he loves to preach about. Why? Because he's a sinner. And he struggles with sin just like everybody. And out of his own struggle and ordeal and his study and prayer and tears, he found in Romans and Hebrews, found out the, the game plan that God has laid down for us to overcome sin in our life. How we're not supposed to look to how we feel, but claim the promise by faith that we are a new creature if we believe in Christ. We walk by faith and not by, by sight. And when he was preaching in this church, when he was a pastor, his pianist had a brother who was an alcoholic of probably... His case was probably the most hopeless you could imagine. This man grew up in a good Adventist Christian home, went to Adventist, good Adventist Christian schools. However, no place is perfect, and no place is without sin. And he got addicted to alcohol by hanging out with the wrong crowd. He went to, I think it was Atlantic Union College, and hung out with the wrong crowd. He became severely addicted to alcohol and through the course of about 25 years ruined his life, ruined his marriage, ruined his job. His liver was about to die and he had what's called esophageal varices, if I said that correctly. Basically, you have blood vessels in your throat that get irritated from the drinking, and they swell up and they and it poses a life-threatening condition because if they rupture, you will bleed to death in your own stomach. This man, uh, he calls him Fred, had gone through 25 detoxes, still hopelessly addicted, 
and he shows up to church. Why? Because just like the people in these stories, it's after they're afflicted, they decide they're going to give God a shot, you know. Then they call out to the Lord. But this man comes to church, and Pastor Bauer has a talk with him. Visits him at his house, where he lives in a 10 by 12 room with a hot plate. And that's all he owned. Not much else, because his money all went into liquor. He told him, you're not addicted to alcohol, Fred. You're addicted to feeling good. And alcohol is just your medicine you use to medicate yourself. So you feel better. And when you mess up and fall into your sin, you get guilty. And you feel bad. So what do you do? You go back and get some more. You know, I'll get up and I'll seek it again, you know, Proverbs says. He said, okay. A few days later, he called uh, a member of his church. was a drug and alcohol abuse counselor. She picked him up. I'm ready for my 26th detox. I'm going to do this one more time. And he had just gone on a drinking binge. And he had driven around with, ridden around with uh, the church member, the counselor, for three and a half hours going to, from one clinic to another. Three and a half hours of not drinking anything. He finally checked in. They took his blood alcohol level at 0.455. After three and a half hours of not drinking, 0.455. I would probably fall into a coma and die if my blood alcohol went up there. Most people are unconscious. He was able to carry on intelligent conversation and walk a straight line. 0.455. And he went into that detox. He went out again. He went to AA. It was not a, a you know, just a steady uphill battle. He struggled. Off and on, but in time, Pastor Bauer kept visiting him. He was able to let go of that demon of alcohol. And the last he had heard from Fred, he was seven years sober. You might not be addicted to alcohol or some substance. Whatever it is, there's hope. Verse 19, then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he, he saved them out of their distresses. He sent his word and healed them. Verse 21, oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Let them sacrifice the sacrifices of thanksgiving and declare his works with rejoicing. Verse 23, this is the last group. Those who go down to the sea in ships who do business on great waters, they see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he commands and raises the stormy wind, which lifts the waves, waves of the sea. They mount up to the heavens, they go down again to the depths. And their soul melts away because of trouble. They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man. They are at their wit's end. 
or perhaps more literally, all their, their wisdom is swallowed up. That's what the Hebrew says. Then they cry out to the Lord. Numerous stories like this in the Bible. Think of Jonah. You think of the disciples on that stormy sea at Galilee twice. You think of Paul on his ship, the book of Acts, and their shipwreck. There's a show on television, Deadliest Catch. How many of you heard of Deadliest Catch? Deadly. Uh, it's been going strong for 10 years on the Discovery Channel. Alaskan uh, king crab fishermen. And they fish for other things depending on the season. And it chronicles, they have the cameras on the boats, and it chronicles their struggle with ice and bad weather and turmoil among the crew personalities. One time, they had a rookie on board, one of the ships. It may not have been one of the ships they had the cameras on, but this man lost it and threw a fit. And I think he became violent. And they had to call a helicopter to get him off this boat because he was not going to last the trip home. This man was interviewed by the television crew. He said, I don't know how these guys are able to do this. I saw waves out there as big as buildings. And this guy was just totally overwhelmed by the sight. I had told you that I was going to try and lay off the Protestant history, church history. But I lied. Actually, that was my intent. But uh, I'll, I'll share this little story with you. 15... 88 was the year of a great crisis for Protestant England. The throne at that time was occupied by Elizabeth I, famous queen. Her work was to unify the, her country that was left in ruins by bloody Queen Mary was before her and mutual bigotry between Protestant and Catholic parties. The Pope had issued a bull of extermination, of excommunication on Queen Elizabeth, and he formally uh, told his subjects in this bull that you don't have to obey this queen anymore. Because that was, that was the power of the Pope. He claims to have this power to absolve subjects of allegiance to their rulers. And of course this meant that she was no longer lawful uh, monarch of England because he was the king over the kings of the earth. You know, the Pope's word was, was law, you know. And so Philip II, a devout Roman Catholic king of Spain, decided he was going to claim England as his rightful heritage. So he constructive, constructed what may have been the most massive naval fleet that had ever been seen up until that time. This was known in history as the Armada. A hundred, over a hundred, some 130 ships, uh, some tens of, of galleons, multi-story ships with big guns. They were floating fortresses. This fleet contained about 20,000 men, uh, 8,000 crewmen, 
and about 2,500 cannons, guns. Monstrous fleet. And they set sail for England to subdue it. And this was a troublous time for England and for Protestantism in general in Europe. The, the Prince of Orange, uh, the Protestant Prince of Netherlands, the Dutch Prince, he had just been assassinated. And look wherever you may throughout Europe, there wasn't much or more strong uh, presence of Protestantism. And England only had about 4 million people. They had this big coastline. They were very vulnerable. They didn't have a very powerful fleet. They had about as many ships as the Spanish, but they were no match. Significantly less powerful. And they went to confront this massive foe with their patriotism and faith. But the other guys had faith too. So whose faith wins in this kind of situation? Long story short, I won't go into all this history, but the smaller English vessels ended up with a decided advantage over the large Spanish ships. They were able to quickly sweep in, fire repeatedly into the Spanish ships, and then get away and use the weather to their advantage. Eventually, they frustrated the, the Spanish so much and, and troubled them that the Spanish... Uh, fled up north to get away and to regroup. But the weather had different plans. The storm carried the heavy Spanish ships across when they tried to circle around the top of England and smashed a great many of them across the coasts of Ireland and Scotland. It was believed at that time, that God had positively intervened for the deliverance of England. One story in particular can give us hope amidst uh, all of that destruction. One of the Spanish ships with their starving men arrived off the eastern coast of Scotland and begged for mercy instead of offering mercy to one of the towns there. And they were brought in and shown good hospitality. And they were spared. Verse 31. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Let them exalt him also in the assembly of the people and praise him in the company of the elders. I'd like to share one more story. If that's okay. I mean, I'm going to do it. It's my last time. But this story is about a gentleman 45 years ago in communist Romania. In the year 1970, Victor was an Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox Christian, and he was taught to be bigoted against Seventh-day Adventists and Saturday Sabbath-keeping Christians. He was taught by his priest to hate them, to, to have a superstitious regard for them, you know, like they're, they're bad luck, Saturdays are bad luck. 
But he had a friend at 23. Victor had a friend who was repeatedly inviting him to attend Friday night meetings at the Seventh-day Adventist church. But Victor kept refusing and refusing. But finally, to get this guy off his back, he said, all right, I'll go. Now, for some people, that's going to work. For others, it's probably not going to work. Use your discretion. Pray about it. So Victor went. And he went to these Friday night meetings. You know, he'd rather stay home and watch TV. But all right, I'll go. And it wasn't anything special. So he just went back home and went on with his week. Victor worked at, um, he was a field technician repairing uh, medical equipment at clinics and hospitals. Next Friday comes along, and almost against his will, he says, he put on his suit and his tie, and he went off to church. He didn't really mean to. He just went. You know, Gary has a similar story. He says when he came here, the wheel on his car just turned. Sorry. He came here one weekday, and big brother Merv was there. It was a Friday. Invited him to Sabbath school. And that's how Gary Middleton, who, in, who introduced me, you know, <laughs> before, that's how he, he joined us. And so Victor came again. He was hoping to not be seen, but he was seen. Like, oh, all right. And he kept coming Friday after Friday. Eventually came Saturdays to the, the morning services. But he still didn't really like the church. He wasn't going to keep the Sabbath. But he liked Sabbath school, and he liked the Bible studies. He liked learning about the Bible. And so he kept going. But he had a problem because he was supposed to be faithfully working at his job on Fridays. And so his solution was to come in early, Sabbath morning, which was Saturday to him, and he'd clock in, and he would just go off to church. But he made up for it by working harder during the week. So... He made up for it, at least. But his conscience still bothered him. This continued for about a year and a half until somebody ratted him out. You know, he wasn't the only one taking uh, Saturdays off like this. Others were. But because this was religiously motivated and he was going to be with those hated Adventists, now this is a communist country, they were discriminatory against religion in general, and especially these Sabbath keepers. And so he was singled out for this persecution. He was given an ultimatum by his superiors. According to the law, you have three Saturdays to get your act together. Clock in, do your work on Saturdays, or else you will be fired. Now in that time, in that age, in that place, being fired didn't mean what being fired meant means to us. If you're fired then and there, you're a criminal because you're supposed to be working for the greater good of the communist society. You know, they, got, they have these grand goals. And Victor had a father who was blind and depended on Victor to take care of him. He was a blind World War II vet. Victor had student loans, and he had signed a contract that he was to work for three years to pay off a debt from his student loans that he was not going to pay by himself for a long, long time. He could not pay. And something in Victor just prompted him to say no. 
I am not going to turn coat. I am going to be faithful now. But he wasn't a church member. He hated the Sabbath, didn't like the church, but he liked Bible studies. He liked the experience of coming to church and being with people and learning about the Bible. So something possessed him to continue on in this pursuit, seemingly at the risk of his existence. Might be thrown in jail somewhere or go to the army or be forced into the army, which he was not ready for yet. The three Sabbaths came and went. The next following Friday, the, the board of the institution where he worked got together to vote for his, on his case, to vote to get him fired. And then all these calamities were, would come into effect. And people were coming to him saying, why are you doing this to your, to your dad, you know, to, to, your, to your blind father? You need to take care of him. You know, it's your duty. Those Christians, those Adventists are hypocrites. They don't even believe their own stuff, and you are willing to suffer for them, and they're not willing to suffer for you at all, I bet. The following Monday after this vote took place, he came in to clock in one last time. I'm finishing up. His boss came in and said, Victor, you should be the happiest man in the world. What's going on? You won. What are you talking about? You see, last Friday, the board members got together to vote on your case. When the time came to vote to have you thrown out and fired, the phone rang. Somebody higher up in the Communist Party asked about you. They asked about your work ethic. Are you a faithful worker? Well, yeah. Our only problem with him is his Saturday business. No matter. Give him official uh, permission to keep his Saturdays and, and have them off. Okay. What had happened was 1970, in the spring, Romania was hit with massive flooding. Hundreds of thousands of people were displaced and homeless. And the Seventh-day Adventist Church was one of the big Protestant uh, contributors. Uh, Gave a lot of money, $100,000. And somebody up in the Communist Party was feeling grateful to Adventists and decided to give this guy a break. Later on, when Victor was being uh, interrogated or questioned by the, the church board about, you know, being baptized, do you have the Sabbath off? He said, yeah, I've got this piece of paper here that says it's signed and it's says, I got the Sabbath off. And their jaws dropped because they'd never seen such a thing. In Romania, that time, you had this department called the Department of the Cults, meaning religion. They were cults. And, and you were indoctrinated in atheism there. So it was highly, very strange that Victor could have this paper that would give him religious liberty and that communist country under Ceausescu and all the struggles they had to endure. Uh, how many of you would like to meet Victor? Just curious. Victor has been here twice last year. Victor is my father. Uh, yeah. So this, anyway, I got to hold you in suspense. Victor is my father, and this is my heritage. And because he just decided to just get dressed that one day against his will and go 
to, to visit these people that he was kind of bigoted against. Uh, because of that, he uh, joined the church eventually. He met my mother. He met her at church. And I am alive here in this condition, whereas I may have been alive in some other place. Verse 43, the very last verse. I'm going to end right here. Read it with me. New King James Version. If you have it, read it with me. I'll give you uh, 10 more seconds to find it. Psalm 103, verse 43. Uh, 107, verse 43. Sorry. Psalm 107, verse 43. Read it with me. Actually, I still hear pages, so I'll wait a little bit longer. All right. Ready? Whoever is wise will observe these things, and they will understand the loving kindness of the Lord. Thank you.